Hey everyone, I'm Nathan, and this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast, where we hear from all kinds of people who are restoring the systems we live in and bringing about a more resilient, joyful and compassionate world. At the heart of our work is our print magazine, and the issue we're about to send to print is all about rest. So rest as resistance to a culture that is all about doing, where busyness and exhaustion are seen as status symbols. And rest is an entry point back to our rich and multi-layered selves, from which we are better able to hold the complexity of this time. The conversation you're about to hear is with the co-founder of Biomimicry, Dana Baumeister. And Biomimicry, for those who aren't familiar with the concept, is a practice that learns from and mimics the strategies found in nature to solve human challenges. We wanted to hear from Dana about her extraordinary work and how it might help us to understand the role rest has played in the evolution of our species. Dana is chatting with Dumbo Feather contributor and permaculture legend Dan Palmer. I'm very excited to explore the work you've been doing around this concept of biomimicry. And it seems to me the place we've got to start is if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what biomimicry is, what your relationship to biomimicry has been over the years, and we'll take it from there. Sure, absolutely. So if we start with a formal definition, if you will, we call it the conscious emulation of nature's genius. And those are four pretty important words. And I think what's worth unpacking in them is why we chose them. So conscious implies that there's an intent. We're not just sort of randomly going about our way as human beings and lo and behold, we happen to act or behave or look or something like other species. And then emulation is also a really important word because it's not copying nature. We can't just replicate uh, what's going on for other species. And keeping in mind, of course, that we are nature. Human beings are one of 30 million species on the planet. But emulate is really about kind of pulling the essence, the design lesson from what these organisms are doing and bringing them into our world of design. And I use design really loosely too. Design means kind of anything we create. And it could be tangible. It could be intangible. If you're having a party tonight, you probably are designing some aspect of that party. Although with COVID, you're probably not having a party tonight. Um, But uh, we design, right? We design schedules. We design products. We design cities. And using nature's lessons and applying them with the intention that we might do it a little bit smarter, a little bit better, a little bit more attuned to the way the planet works. And that's really tapping into the genius of what nature has to offer. She's been thriving for 3.85 billion years. We may have 300,000 years on the planet. It's a little hard to say, which is just a fraction of that time. So, you know, there's something that we could learn if we intend to do that. I'm a biologist by training, but I've worked in biomimicry now for 23 years. I met Janine Benyus, the author of the book Biomimicry, who coined the term two months after her book came out. And we've been working side by side ever since. I work on the verb side of biomimicry. What does it mean to do this? What's the practice look like? How do we actually learn from nature? How do we extract those lessons? How do we give back? How do we show our appreciation and gratitude? And Janine works more on the noun side. What is it? What are examples of it? And, and let's, let's make that, uh, that defining. And in this time, you know, what we've looked at is all the different ways in which one can have a little bit of humbleness 
and acquire our cleverness and say, hey, nature, can you help us out here? We, we, we need some guidance. It's also very important to us that we're very true to the science and the biology, at least as best as we understand today. It's not about just getting a spark of inspiration and then patting ourselves on the back for being clever humans and off we run, but really about a deepening our understanding and possibilities of the guidance that we could get from nature while honoring that science and being really true to what we understand that it's going on. And then the applications apply everywhere, like everywhere from product design to social innovation questions. At the same time, they don't replace ethics. They don't replace morals. They don't, you know, they don't solve all of our issues uh, like social justice, but they can provide insights into ways for us to think about how to be a good species on the planet. Yeah, that's great. Such rich and important work. Maybe it would be useful to have a couple of examples, maybe some recent examples you're aware of, of how biomimicry has been done. Yeah. Um, well, I like some of the examples that are just sort of like really clear cut, even mm -hmm. if they're not so recent because they, mm. you know, capture the essence of what it's about. We like to think of our examples sort of in three categories, the form, process, and ecosystem, and in terms of sort of what's mimicked. And at the form level, it's, it's literally looking at a particular shape and identifying what function does that shape provide for the organism? And does that match a functional need that we have? And then therefore, let's try that shape out. And, you know, a great example is the Shinkansen train, which replaced the bullet train in Japan. Uh, High-speed train used to have a nose cone that looked like a bullet, hence the name. But they had a problem that when it traveled through tunnels, it created a sonic boom when it exited the tunnels because of the pressure wave. And so an engineer working on that project happened to be a part-time birder and recognized that what was happening is you're moving from one density medium inside the tunnel to a much less dense medium outside the tunnel. And there's a wave that creates as, as you make that transition. And he was observing the kingfisher bird, which flies from one density medium, in this case, air, into water to catch a fish. And it can't create a wave because otherwise it's going to scare the fish away. And sure enough, it had to do with the shape of the beak. And so he said, well, what if we put that shape, that form on the front of our train, what might happen? And sure enough, they did. And in addition to eliminating the sonic boom, because it didn't create the waves, it also increased the fuel efficiency of the trains by 3%. So super cool wins and a fairly sort of simple, I mean, obviously it's much more complex to go through the engineering process, but you know, it's like, okay, A equals B, I get this. At the process level, you might look at things like in healthcare, uh, one that I find really intriguing is a process that several organisms use to manage dehydration. And they use a process called anhydrobiosis, which is a fancy Greek word that really means without water, there is life. And what they do is they, like a, this might be a water bear, a tardigrade, or the resurrection fern, they have a special sugar in their cells that when it dries out, it forms a solid, an amber. And then when you add water again, it liquefies. But an amber isn't crystallized, so it doesn't have any pokey ends. It doesn't have any pokey parts. The sugars in our cells, when they dry out, they have pokey parts and then they poke holes in our cells and then we dehydrate and we die. 
And so that's a process of preservation, if you will, that these different species are using. And so scientists have been able to mimic that process by mimicking that trehalose sugar molecule and use it to preserve vaccines, which of course is very relevant today. A number of the vaccines that are on the short list right now are requiring cold chain, that you keep them refrigerated at super cold temperatures. And if we could find a way to use this trehalose in, in other vaccines, which has been done to increase the viability of vaccines going into remote places of the, of the planet, then that increases the likelihood that vaccine will still be viable when it reaches its intended recipient. So that's a mimic of process. And then mimicking ecosystem, we're doing some really fascinating work right now that we're calling Project Positive. And it's really about can our whole systems, our, our built environment, mimic the ecosystem level functions of the ecosystem that they reside in. And so it might be kind of factory function like the forest in which it exists. Can a headquarters function like the grassland in which it's built? And can it be a net contributor to ecosystem services as opposed to a net depleter of those services? And so we ask those questions, well, how does this ecosystem work and what's important to it? And how can design interventions in the building give back and contribute in a more integrated kind of manner? And so that would be looking at nature for inspiration at, at whole systems level uh, applications. That's fascinating. Having done a bit of research on some of the form examples and the process examples, but the ecosystem examples, they fascinate me. And how can a factory or whatever is the headquarters be integrated into a the local ecology in a, exactly. in a reciprocal And they're harder. Way. They're certainly harder yeah, that's right. Do, right? I mean, yeah. any systems level challenge is harder, but there's more of those questions being asked and then attempts at answering them. Now, the theme of the current issue of the Thumb of Feather magazine is around rest. And so it'd be great to explore that. I was wondering if you could help us sort of think through how we might approach from a biomimicry perspective, if that was our thing we're interested in and we're interested in helping, I guess, maybe it's in the process level, supporting the way humans think about and access sufficient rest or whatever. How might we proceed? Sure. Well, I can tell you a little bit about sort of what goes on in my mind when right. a question like this is asked, right? And the first thing that I begin thinking about is what are the analogs and what are we trying to accomplish with rest? And what does that mean for other organisms out there in the world? You know, what does rest mean to them? What's the translated equivalent? Right? And in some cases, it could be a very literal, you know, well, yeah, actually, tigers do rest, you know, and, and we might use that term. But sometimes we have to translate that verb into a like drive a car that, you know, we would never ask how do organisms drive a car, but we might ask how do they move themselves, right? How do they transport? Those are questions we could ask. So first we do that sort of translation and find analogs. And then I look for patterns. And so it's not about finding an isolated species and saying, oh, I'm going to mimic the bear and I'm going to hibernate for the next seven months. See you later. You know, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's understanding these patterns and then also the context in which they arise. Like not just what is the strategy and, and, and a collection of organisms that might employ that strategy. So hibernation writ large is a strategy. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, when is hibernation relevant? Like what is the context and, and why does that strategy play out versus another strategy? And so we'd unpack that a little bit and think about it. And then there's always some interesting, especially when we're applying it back to the human biology, is looking a little bit at our evolutionary history 
and understanding as biological beings, what does this thing like rest have to do with us? Because we, we live our lives as if the industrial revolution is the defining context, but genetically, physiologically, we're programmed for a very, very different context than the industrial revolution has surrounded us with. And so it's worth asking some of those questions to find out what that might mean. So that's where my brain kind of goes. So now to actually unpack it and speak to that a little bit. What I do think we know, actually, both from our evolutionary history and looking at other organisms, is proportionally, they spend a much greater part of their lives resting than we do as a species across the board. And I think there's sort of two contributing factors to that. One is, you know, we're just busy to be busy a lot. We have sort of this, this productivity mindset that is a byproduct of living in a world that believes that growth is the only activity of, of worth. But one of those life's principles we just talked about is called integrate development with growth. And life holds those two in balance. Growth is not the end all to be all. So when we're driven into that productivity mode, we... We're active all the time. But the other thing is the context in which we're around and that it demands activity of us, right? It demands that we move from place to place, that we work for creating these meals for us, that we have to engage in activities to have these sort of social uh, arrangements. All these contextual things around us demand activity as opposed to rest. And what I think is so interesting about COVID is I've loved the term, the great pause, because it forced us to be like, whoa, you know, what was that crazy thing I was trapped in? And like, ah, this is what, this is what rest can look like, right? So what we know from organisms, why they rest is one, they don't, have to be productive, right? Like they don't have these contextual demands that are like, go, 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 go. Clearly there's times, right? When rest is not possible. And that's when, you know, there may be some sort of dynamic situation in the environment. A hurricane's coming, a firestorm is coming, there's winter coming and we need to begin migrating or there is periodicity to activity. But a good portion of the time, it's like, okay, I know my place. I'm locally attuned. I don't have to spend a lot of energy trying to figure this place out because I get it. I know it. And it's not changing all that much right now. So I can like slow down. Our brains require so much metabolic energy and therefore they want to be lazy because it's expensive to feed those calories to the brain. And so if I don't have to be interpreting a new thing on the horizon and checking out a risk or learning a new food or sending an email or whatever, then my brain can just chill and I'm going to let it chill because then that reduces my caloric demands and I don't have to work so hard for food. Notice I said it's not caloric demands for my muscles, but it's actually caloric demands for my brain or in any organism that doesn't have necessarily this collection of neurons, whatever their sensory capabilities are, demand energy. And so if I can rest, then I'm going to rest. So that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is you need to rest. We just know that any organism that is constantly in motion, cells that are constantly growing and dividing, what do we call them? cancer, right? So anything that's in constant motion and constant investment of attention and energy and activity dies young. It just, it can't go on. Our biological machinery is not designed for that. 
And so those are sort of the two reasons that life uses rest writ large. And you can see it that, and, and the degree of rest is directly attributed to the sensorial environment in which an organism is in. And the more dynamic that is, the less restful it can be. And that's just a pure biological. Here's an example. I have a friend that is teaching yoga. She's invited me to go to the park and do yoga. I'm like, that's great. But we're at the park and there's a tennis court next door. And it's like, pink, 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 pink. you know, like the whole time I'm trying to do yoga. So she asks for feedback afterwards. And I said, well, you know, I kind of need to rest. Like yoga for me is, a, well, no, our brains need to learn to deal with all these distractions and you should just, and I'm like, no, I'm not biologically supposed to override those signals. I'm really supposed to put myself in a place where my sensors, my antenna can actually take a break and not be stimulated and not be triggered. I got a little excited as you're talking and my mind was going in the same direction. And I remembered I did a course on tracking with Tom Brown Jr. at one point. He was talking about how we walk through a natural environment. We think of animals and we think, oh, your animals, they're always running around because when we see them, they're running away from us. And he made the point that on average, it's running at full capacity, like something like 1% of its waking hours. It's mm -hmm. running kind of fastish 5%. And the vast majority is a slow walk or it's stationary. And right. yeah, realizing, of course, because of its context. And like you say, it knows it so well, it's got its stuff sorted out. It's got to be efficient with calories. That's exactly right. And we don't really think about that sometimes when we talk about conservation efforts. But our impact is not just about habitat destruction. It's not just about, you know, introduction of disease. One of our big impacts is the introduction of signals. And those signals can really wear out animals because they're having to process them, make sense of them, check them out. Is this danger? Is this okay? And especially ones that are relatively new to them, biologically, right? You know, say sonar signals under the sea, like they just have not had time to adapt to those. And so when you see a stranding, it's, it's almost like sensory overload. Ah, you know, no more, I can't do this, you know? And, and if, if animals could, you know, pull the pillow and the covers over their heads, uh, they would to escape from some of our impacts, whether it's light, noise, any of those signals. Like the job of adrenaline is to fuel us and, and help us in those moments when like there's something chasing me or whatever. Whereas with such a signal rich environment, we can just be in those hyper alert periods exactly. for so long. Right. And the operative word there is moments, right? Yeah. The adrenaline was there for the moments, not for the periods, for the hours. <laughs> the day, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's right. That's fascinating. So I can see how the approach would work. And then it sounds like from there, from a design perspective, it'll be like, okay, well, let's look at the aspects of our environments that are needlessly flooding us with signals and, and how might we mm -hmm. redesign or adjust our human habitats. That's exactly it. And that's what we talk about, especially when it comes to, you can't dictate people. Hmm. Time to rest now. You know I mean? Even kindergartners, you tell them it's nap time. They're like, yeah, right. You know, I'm not doing that. Like, are your toddlers? Like, I'm not taking a nap now because you told me to. But you can create the habitat conditions that cause a behavior to emerge, right? That cause that kind of to emerge. Even when my kids were little, I was like, that's fine. You don't have to take a nap, but you do have to stay here in this space, right? And this space is safe. It's signals that you recognize. There's nothing actually new and interesting going on. Mm -hmm. So really your brain is kind of bored 
you know, and it's going to just fall asleep. But I never actually told them they needed to go to sleep. And of course, you can do that at a larger scale. If you run an organization and you're trying to create an environment for your employees to have some restful moments, ideally more like restful periods, then one thing to ask yourself is what is the stimuli in this space and how can I either make it familiar? There's a key to familiarity. It doesn't mean you have to completely eliminate the signal, but it needs to become familiar enough that I don't have to expend any brain power checking out how dangerous that signal might be, that new thing. You know, we all walk by trees all the time and we don't go, oh, what is that? Is it going to fall on me? Is it something, you know, like we're like, that's a tree. But if we were in an environment where there was different things happening and branches or nuts falling or whatever, then we would be a lot more alert when we're walking by these trees. And that's that brain laziness factor. You know, it's like a tree. Yeah. I know what yeah. a tree is. Actually, just a quick detour. This is one of the problems that's happening in the world today because our brains are so lazy and we like the familiar. That's why we stay with tribes. That's why we don't bother learning about new things. That's why we have confirmational bias and we don't bother to, you know, we're just like, oh, yeah, even if it's fake news, that reaffirms what I already thought because my brain is too lazy to consider then there might be an alternative explanation. And so it serves us and it also hurts us, this lazy brain of ours. Fantastic. One thought there is that rest is not necessarily an on-off thing, right? There's a kind of a gradient. And so there's cycles of expansion. It's time to run and eat and whatever. And then there's contraction. There's a kind of an organic rhythm there. I was thinking also actually that when you think about the habitat, the environment, a lot of that is to do with seasonality in the case of hibernation and daily cycles and being adapted to and fitting in with the reality of these larger forces we can't change. Mm -hmm. It's going to get dark for 12 hours. Right. Yeah. And that context is really important, right? So we used rest writ large as a large cluster, but there's actually multiple ways to rest. And so hibernation is one where I'm going to have a flurry of activity, and then I'm going to have basically no activity. But the reason why I'm having no activity is because there's nothing to eat, right? There's nothing around for me in that time. And if I have activity, I have to have food. So I'm not going to do that. That context drives the behavior. Whereas another form of rest, say in many swimming organisms, like sharks, right? They have to have the water movement over their gills. So they've figured out a strategy to turn half of their brain off and they take turns, right? So half the brain rests. And most of the time, half of the brain is asleep. Or if we look at our pets, right? Our pets are so cued into us. And of course, we're busy beings. But man, when they get the chance, they're like power nap, right? Power nap. But then I'm ready to go. You're ready to go. Oh, power nap, power nap. So yeah, so different organisms have these different strategies dependent on the context in in which they, they live. It appears evolutionarily that our periods of activity and inactivity were in the burst of a few hours. So we might have two, three hours of gathering and then two, three hours of resting, and then two, three hours of maybe preparing what we gathered, mashing grains or or drying, and then two, three hours of sort of dozing, and then maybe some social engagement kinds of things. Mm. And this whole like work for eight hours and then 
half work and then sleep for eight hours doesn't actually really well align with our evolutionary history. It doesn't look like we did the eight hour sleep. And part of that is what are the odds that for eight hours, there's not going to be a single noise at night. So that waking and sort of not waking. And and so the ideal way for us to rest and really tap into our physiology would be to design our days to have those shorter, but multi-hour chunks of activity and calm and activity and calm. It doesn't necessarily have to be sleep, but calm, right? Hardly, yeah. We've still got the patterns in a lot of uh, societies around the world that are more connected with their traditional habits, with the siestas. And I was thinking about the town plazas and squares in Italy or Mexico or wherever, where that's really normal. In a lot of modern life, we associate social time as non-rest. It's we're walking, we're partying, we're whatever, we're chatting, as opposed to people sitting next to each other in a plaza and not a word is said for 20 minutes and they're not asleep, right. but they're in a, they're in a they're somewhere in between. Presence, so bring, yeah. bringing that gradient back in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. I see that what's coming up for me is part of the biomimicry doorway. It's like asking some good questions and seeing where they take And you. being really open. You have to watch for a little bit because we have a little bit of a desire to sort of self-reinforce our own beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I've seen people say, have their own philosophy on something like rest. And then they go out and cherry pick some biological examples to say, look, we're being like nature, you know? And that's really sort of just a metaphorical bastardization, which is why, as I said earlier, it's important to sort of stick with the biology and understand what are these patterns and in what context do they work? And why do they work? And how can we think about those contexts differently? And to set aside any preconceived notions we have about the answer here and let nature guide us. And for me, that's such a strong drive because I'm just constantly blown away at what nature has to offer. And so why I would even for a moment think about putting my own cleverness in there and just be crazy. So it's like everything I would miss out on if I immediately jumped to conclusions or immediately took the first um, organism that I found or whatever, it'd be like, what a lost opportunity. Yeah, I relate to how it can be very hard to have it to break. And what a tragedy, right? You go and saying, yeah, I'm going to do biomimicry. And you basically go and cherry pick something to confirm your pre-cooked hypothesis. It reminds me, one thing I was learning as I was doing some research was there's at least a couple of different paths through the process. And one of them was I've got a specific design problem or solution in mind. I'm going to go in with that lens and actually say, okay, how does this work in the rest of the living world? And then progress there and hopefully arrive at something that gets me where I want to go. As opposed to what came up for me as you were just talking, which is looking around, you know, reconnecting, bringing that ethos and just being curious and not having any idea of whether you're going to get anything or not. And then you notice something and that introduces a question and so on and so forth. And you may end up with quite an amazing solution in that way. Are they two of many or are they the two main sort of no, ways? Those are the two main ones. Yeah. So the first one we call challenge to biology, right? Okay. So you have a challenge, you have a need, yeah. and that need usually has some pretty defined operating conditions. So let's go back to rest. A manager of a company might come to us and say, boy, we've just got terrible sick leave. Like everybody's constantly taking off. Like I got to find a way to give my staff more rest. How can I do that? 
then we go in and we're like, okay, well, what are you trying to achieve? What's the function? What's the operating conditions? And then we go into nature and find similar scenarios, right? So if I came back to him and said, well, you just need to let them hibernate for the next four months. He'd be like, uh, you know, how can I make that work? Like we got to run the factory. That's just not going to happen. So we've got to um, have that conversation, right? So that's challenged biology. Biology to design is the other one. So let's learn about this phenomenon of rest as we've been talking about here. And what are all the different ways in which nature does rest and where does it apply it and why does it apply? It? We call it a bio 360, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we've done bio 360s on scent. What is scent in nature and what does it do and where is it used and mm-hmm. what can what can you learn from that? We did this for a cosmetics company, right? So they were interested in that. And they ended up with all sorts of innovative ideas once they understood new ways to think about the process of scent. We've also done like nutrient cycling. How does how do nutrients move and cycle in nature? And that work is applied in the circular economy. Like what are the, the rules to think about in this space when we understand the fundamentals of nutrient cycling in nature? And so that bio 360, and that's exactly what you said, look around and learn about this phenomena and then see what can transpire from that. So an inventor might find that. And some of the really interesting, intriguing inventions out there are ones where somebody was like, that's a really weird thing that nature's doing. That would be really interesting if we did X, Y, and Z with that. And then they go and invent something. So yeah, those are the two primary ways of tapping into that. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about parts and holes. And I feel like this is probably going to lead us back to the principles because I've seen in a lot of the better known examples of biomimicry, what's been emulated or where the inspiration has come from is a part of an organism. So the Mm -hmm. edge of the fin of the humpback whale or the beak of the kingfisher, whatever it is. And those parts have evolved in the context of a whole organism and a whole species, which of course, if we were to study that, that's a lifetime (laughs) gone sort of thing. I was wondering, it seems that part of what biomimicry involves when we're reconnecting and taking it all in is honoring the parts and the holes. And it seems to me that's where the principles or one place they come in, right? Because the principles are talking about how does the whole organism show up? Does that well, resonate for you? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, I could definitely speak to it, but I don't know that I would necessarily directly tie it to the life's principles. In fact, I teach at Arizona State University, and we were talking about this very subject today, in that there is a gradient of really super literally, like, so take the Venus flower basket, right? It's a sea sponge that's made out of glass fibers. And they can grow big enough, some species, that a diver can actually swim inside of them. And it's an invertebrate. It doesn't have a backbone, but it's made out of glass fibers deep in the sea. So if you were to emulate that in a very, very, very literal way, we would not only mimic the structural orientation of the fibers, they actually have seven different orientations and they're very specific, horizontal and vertical, and there's a spiral and there's a doubling and and lattice. And, but if you were to also make them and understand the biochemistry of the creation of those glass fibers, they're actually glass created in ambient temperatures. We don't make glass in ambient temperatures, we heat it and we add pressure. So really, really literally an emulation would look at a structure, take those seven structural guidelines and the process by which they were made. And then perhaps even the whole ecosystem question of, well, where do those minerals come from? What happens to the end of their life? How do they contribute to the larger ecosystem questions? And ask that of our design. Does our design also locally source its minerals? Does it also use low energy processes to assemble? Does it also give back nutrients to the system at the end of its life? And so, yes, in that way, 
as we expand our emulation to be as authentic as we can, we do begin asking these more holistic system-based kinds of questions. And it's not to say that there isn't any value in say, just like, let's use rebar and let's put rebar in those seven structural orientations. And whoa, lo and behold, we get a much stronger building for less metal, less materials than we thought. Like there's some value in that, right? There's some worthiness in that. Maybe we make a different bridge. It has nothing to do with the water and it's not locally sourced, but now this bridge carries the same weight for half the steel that we were originally going to use. That's worthy of exploration. But when you take it way over on the other end and you're just like, oh, let's build things that have multiple orientations. Okay, so what, you know, like it it can be so removed from the biology. It might still inspire somebody and they get some idea, but then they go back to their cleverness, you know, kind of category. But the other piece that comes to that, and this is, I think, where you were going, if you start saying, well, did you use low energy processes to assemble this? Well, yes, that is actually one of the life's principles. Life uses low energy processes. It doesn't use no energy. It uses low energy processes. It also makes use of readily available materials and energy. It doesn't drill thousands of meters beneath the soil surface for its energy source. It says, what's here? What's now? And is it readily available? It doesn't use really rare earth minerals to build its molecules. Life uses carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen because they're everywhere, right? And therefore they're worth working with, right? This readily available. So that's another life's principle. So yes, as you're doing an analysis of an organism and trying to become more true to, you know, mimicking more of its biology in a systems perspective, inevitably you begin incorporating these sorts of life's principles into your process. Yeah, fantastic. You mentioned one earlier on, which I don't fully grasp. It was the integrate development with growth. Hmm. I can tell there's something important in there. Well, yeah. So we have 26 principles in all, and they fit in six major categories. And one of the six major categories is integrate development with growth. And the process, or really what that's ultimately about, is that in no situation does life invest solely in one of those categories. So if you say, let's take a tree. Mm-hmm. A tree is, has a number of functions, one of which is to gather energy from the sun. So therefore, you want to expose yourself to the sun, right? You need to have a growth strategy that gets you in the sun. Well, if you just focused on growth, then you would build the tallest, spindliest thing you could to get up to the sun and not invest anything in development of trunk or roots or whatever. And then, of course, the first windstorm, boom, you're done, right? Like, you're just not going to have it. But at the same time, if you're like, okay, I'm going to be a stocky tree, I'm going to have big trunks and big roots, but you're not reaching for the sun at all, then you're not getting any sugars to grow those trunks and roots, right? So you have to kind of work these two together. Even the way our own bodies develop, like when a baby is in the womb, it has phases of development and phases of growth. And so the development phases are like, say, cell differentiation. You're going to be a brain, you're going to be a liver, you're going to be a backbone. Like that's putting the pieces in place. And then for a couple of weeks, a month, the whole thing grows 
then the whole thing just gets bigger. Okay. And then there's some more differentiation and like, okay, let's get some articulation in the fingers and let's build some neurons in the brain and let's build some more blood vessels. And then let's grow again. Let's just grow bigger again. And it's why, for example, that preemies, like if you get to 30 weeks, there's a good chance that you'll make it because the development of all those parts has already been in place. You're just not quite big enough yet okay. to pop yeah. out. Yeah. So at the very end, you get bigger. And then, of course, we see that with our with our children when they, when they grow up, right? They have stages of development where they're learning about the art of tying their shoe or eating their food mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And then other stages where it's like all they're doing is just growing. They just eat and grow, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then they trip over themselves, right? Because they can't even get used to their new body size. But the same should be said of a healthy city is one that has integrated development and growth. Look at, say, Dubai. Dubai was like, we're just going to grow. We're going to develop all this stuff and big buildings. and like, But half of them are empty. They overemphasized the development. They put all the structures in place, but the people weren't there and the energy and the fuel to grow that. And so we need to have, and the healthiest cities have done both of that. Other places, like we call them boom towns, and probably with mining in Australia, you have them as well, where it's like suddenly there's a jackpot of all this oil or gold and, and all these people move in, but there's no roads, there's no infrastructure, there's no healthcare. It's like all these people and what a mess. So in our own lives, we need to be really mindful about those growth and those development phases in our relationships, in our work, in our homes, you know, that investment. And you can think of development also a little bit in the maintenance category too, right? You know, so taking care of things. Part of the resting stage is also about healing and self-repair and having some energy devoted to that, which is also the maintenance Yeah, that was where my mind was going in terms of the rest topic that would often be associated with rest. We do a day of growing certain things and then a lot of the rest is consolidating, developing, Mm -hmm. assimilating and so on. There are two other category of principles that jumped out with particularly the locally attuned and responsive. Earlier, you're talking about how important that is. If we're not locally attuned, if we're not familiar with our environment, rest is a pretty um, tough proposition. Yeah, no, that's a key one, right? And so all of the life's principles are derived from the operating conditions of the planet. And one of which the operating conditions is that it's changing all the time and it's dynamic. And therefore we have a master principle of adapting to changing conditions. But because things are changing constantly, some of which are predictable, some of which are not predictable, then we also need to attune to the place that we know so that, oh, it's getting dark. I think I'm, I need to do something different right now because my eyesight is not going to serve me in a couple of hours. And then every day you have that night, dark, night, dark, you're attuned to that space and you figure out, okay, I need to climb up in my tree and rest in the tree because then I don't have to worry about predators at night because I'm resting in the tree or whatever it might be. Yep. You develop those strategies. And we've lost that, right? In the globalized world, we've had a huge desensitization of our local antenna. And of course, a lot of the work in sustainability is saying, you know, go back and really let's rethink this local question. Well, I guess it's an open invitation for anyone interested to explore the remainder of the principles. And Oh, and- definitely. Yeah. And they can find them on our website and review them. Biomimicry.net would be the place to find okay. these the resources and things that we've talked about.
Hopefully that gives you a bit of a taste of what biomimicry is all about. And also an interesting perspective on rest, which, as I mentioned, is the focus of Dumbo Feather Issue 65. And you can subscribe now to make sure you get your hands on that issue or purchase it on our website or at news agencies or specialty shops from mid-November. The Dumbo Feather podcast is produced in the lands of the Woiwurrung people in Melbourne's north and the Arakwa people of Byron Bay. We acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands and elders past, present and emerging. Thank you to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. And we'll see you next time for more stories of beautiful work in the world on the Dumbo Feather podcast. <laughs>